Again, a brief warning. This week's opening contains descriptions of disturbing violence. If you wish to skip it, the main episode begins at 5 minutes and 30 seconds. Presentation by Bishop Don Fray Bartolome de las Casas. To the Most High and Potent Lord, Prince of all the Spains, Don Felipe, our Most High and Potent Lord, because divine providence has ordered in this world that for the direction and common utility of human lineage the world be constituted by kingdoms of people, it is the duty of the king, with greatest study and vigilant industry, to reduce the evils within his realm. Considering, then, most potent Lord, the evils and harms, the perditions and ruin, the equals or likes of which, never were men imagined capable of considering. This subject was not able to contain himself from supplicating your majesty, most importunely, that your majesty not concede such license, nor allow those terrible things that the tyrants have committed against those peaceable, humble, and meek Indian peoples, who offend no person. Into and among these gentle sheep, endowed by their maker and creator with all the qualities aforesaid, did creep the Spaniards, who no sooner had knowledge of these people, than they became like fierce wolves and tigers and lions, who have gone many days without food or nourishment. And no other thing have they done for forty years until this day, and still today see fit to do, but dismember, slay, perturb, afflict, torment, and destroy the Indians by all manner of cruelty, and new and diverse and most singular manners, such as never before seen or read or heard of, to such a degree that on the island of Hispaniola, of the above three million souls that we once saw, Today there are no more than two hundred of those native people remaining. The island of Cuba is almost devoid of population. The island of San Juan, Puerto Rico, and that of Jamaica have been laid waste. On the islands of Lucayos, the Bahamas, where there were once above five hundred thousand souls, today there is not a living human creature. All were killed while being brought. And because of being brought to the island of Hispaniola, where the Spaniards saw that their stock of these natives of that latter island had come to an end, two principal and general customs have been employed by those, calling themselves Christians, who have passed this way in extirpating and striking from the face of the earth those suffering nations. The first being unjust, cruel, bloody, and tyrannical warfare. The other after having slain all those who might yearn toward, or suspire after, or think of freedom. It is the Spaniards' custom in their wars to allow only young boys and females to live, being to oppress them with the hardest, harshest, and most heinous bondage to which men or beasts might ever be bound into. The cause for which the Christians have slain and destroyed so many and such indefinite numbers of souls has simply been to get, as their ultimate end, the Indians' gold. The fifth kingdom was Hike over which Queen Hikanama, an elderly princess, whom the Spaniards crucified, presided and governed. I saw an infinite number of people burned and dismembered and racked with various torments, and those who survived these matchless evils, who were then enslaved. I really believe and am satisfied by certain undeniable conjectures that at the very time these outrages were committed on this isle, 
the Indians were not so much guilty of one single mortal sin of commission against the Spaniards. The wars being over and the inhabitants all swept away, the Spaniards divided among themselves the young men, women, and children, one taking thirty, another forty. To this man one hundred were given, and to the other two hundred. Yet those Spaniards to whom the Indians were given were themselves for the most part idiotic, cruel, avarice, and infected with all sorts of vices. And this was the great care they had of the Indians. They sent men to the mines to dig for gold, which is an intolerable labor. The women they turned to tilling and manuring the ground, which is drudgery. They gave them nothing else to eat but wild grasses and other such insubstantial nourishment, so that the milk of nursing women dried up, which meant that the recently born infants all died. Since the females were separated from and did not live with the men, there were no new births among them. The men were exterminated and dwindled away to nothing, and the women perished in the fields, broken from the same evils and calamities. Thus, the infinite number of inhabitants that formerly peopled these islands were exterminated. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 23. It isn't pretty. Europe spent 30 years battling through the carnage we've come to know as the Thirty Years' War, to set the balance of power between the Catholics and Protestants in Europe. England had returned to the Catholic fold during this period. Then came Queen Elizabeth I, who changed England back into a Protestant country, upsetting the balance of power that Europe had paid so dearly for. This set up another struggle for power in Europe. Spain, one of Europe's two great Catholic powers, decided to invade England and impose a Catholic monarch on the throne who would be beholden to Spain. In preparation for this, Spain amassed one of the greatest invasion forces ever put together at the time. 130 ships, 8,000 seamen, and a large, very well-provisioned army. England faced its gravest existential crisis it would face until Hitler's attack in the Battle of Britain in World War II. England knew that the Armada was coming and was prepared for it. On the eve of the Great Battle, which the English Navy defeated the Great Spanish Armada, Queen Elizabeth I traveled to Tilbury, where the English fleet was preparing to set sail in order to address her troops. Fortunately for us, her remarks were recorded for posterity. My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes, for fear of treachery. But I assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that under God I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects. And therefore I am come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people and my honor and my blood even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, 
but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms, I myself will be your general, judge, and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already, for your forwardness you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do not assure you on a word of a prince that shall be duly paid. In the meantime, my lieutenant-general shall be in my stead, than whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject, not doubting but by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp, and your valor in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over these enemies of my God, of my kingdom, and of my people. Time won't allow me to spend the episode on the reign of Queen Elizabeth I that she deserves, but we need to at least acknowledge her contribution. As I pointed out a few times, we're following the arrow of history that takes us to the Industrial Revolution. She reigned over 150 years before the Industrial Revolution, but in my view, it was Queen Elizabeth that made it possible for the Industrial Revolution to occur in England when it did. King Henry VIII had been a disaster for England. He took all of the church's lands, which were vast, for the crown. This amount of land could have supported the English government in perpetuity. But Henry liked his wars, a lot, and war was becoming increasingly expensive. So he sold all of the church land that he could expropriate to raise immediate funds to support his military ambitions. Yet he wasn't a good general, and England had very little to show for all of Henry's warring by the end of his reign. He bequeathed to his children a kingdom that was very nearly bankrupt. His son Edward VI, who succeeded him, reigned for six years, but was young, sickly, and an ineffectual king. And his daughter Mary I, known to us as Bloody Mary, similarly did little to repair the damage her father had done to the English treasury and economy. It was Elizabeth who came to the throne in 1588 and who reigned for 44 years that provided good, conservative, fiscally responsible leadership that left England in far, far better condition economically than the country she had inherited from her sister. If she hadn't set England on the course she did, the Industrial Revolution never would have occurred in England when it did. Okay, I've got to move on, but read up on Elizabeth when you have time. This episode is about Europe's era of discovery and expansion into foreign lands that was in full swing under Elizabeth's reign. So let's get back to a Europe in the early Renaissance. By that time, many of the great nobles controlled significantly more wealth and had a taste to spend it on luxury items. High on the list of coveted luxuries were the exotic spices that could only be imported from the East via the Silk Roads. All of these converged on and came through Constantinople. After Mehmed II conquered Constantinople in 1453, he largely shut down the Silk Roads. As a consequence, there was a general search to attempt to find an alternate trade route for the coveted spices that the European elite had developed a taste for. Spain and Portugal were in the forefront of this search for alternate routes to the east. Prince Henry the Navigator of Portugal built a school of navigation. The school taught astronomy, mathematics, and navigation. A new kind of sailing ship had recently been invented called the Caraval. 
there was a huge improvement over previous generations of sailing ships. A caravel looks quite small to us today, but it was seaworthy and would allow Columbus and many other explorers to cross the Atlantic. In the early days of the 15th century, Prince Henry built shipyards to build new caravels. With these, he began expeditions down the coast to Africa. Prince Henry died in 1460, still not having found the sea route to India that he had been searching for. But he was on the right track. In 1488, 28 years after the death of Prince Henry, Bartolomeo Diaz reached the tip of Africa, now known as the Cape of Good Hope, showing that there was a way to sail around the southern continent. Finally, in 1498, Vasco da Gama famously reached India, where he redeemed all of Prince Henry the Navigator's hard work and established Portugal's first overseas empire, allowing Portugal at last to circumvent the spice roads, bypass the Genoese and Venetian monopolies, and cash in on the profits that came with the spice trade. In his famous attempt to reach the Indies by sailing west, Columbus convinced Ferdinand and Isabella, monarchs of the newly unified Spain, to finance the provisioning of three caravels on a voyage to attempt to find India by sailing west. From what I've read, Columbus's first journey was quite a feat. Navigational instruments, such as the sextant, were still well off into the future, and Columbus had to figure his latitude and longitude by dead reckoning, that is, by looking at the stars and figuring his position more or less by gut feel. He had to figure out that if he went south of the equator, he could catch the trade winds that would blow his ships west to what he thought was the Indies. And then to return, he had to sail north of the equator to catch the trade winds that would blow his ships back to Spain. Then there's the evidently true story of him ignoring his crew's urgent entreaties to turn back to Spain, only to learn a few days later that he had discovered what became known as the New World. The Spanish crown would ultimately fund four of Columbus's voyages to the New World. Although he was an exceptional navigator, he was less accomplished as an administrator in his role as governor of the New World. Consequently, this position would ultimately go to others but didn't detract from his accomplishments. Despite some persistent rumors to the contrary, Columbus died a wealthy man in Spain at age 54. In perhaps 1497, Amerigo Vespucci sailed to the New World. Although the number of voyages he took is not exactly known, it was between two and four. His voyages of exploration took him quite a way along the South American coast, enough for him to believe that he wasn't seeing India which he knew was in the Northern Hemisphere, but a completely new continent. So now we're somewhere around the turn of the 16th century. Remember that the Gutenberg Bible was printed in 1455, so the printing press is about 50 years old now, and in the early stages of being widely used. America Vespucci seems to have been better at exploiting this new medium than Columbus. Some of his letters from the New World were widely disseminated. In addition, he got his name on the maps produced by the cartographers, and so we live in the Americas, not the Columbias. Columbus wasn't the only navigator who searched internationally for a country to fund his voyages of discovery. The Venetian navigator Giovanni Caboto emigrated to England and became John Cabot. It was there that he was funded by Henry VII to take one ship in 1497 across the North Atlantic, where he discovered Labrador, Newfoundland, or perhaps Cape Breton Island. Nobody's completely sure. At any rate, he planted the English flag 
and established English claims in North America that would come to have huge ramifications for American and Canadian colonists. Ferdinand Magellan left Spain on September 20, 1519, with five ships and about 270 men in an attempt to reach the Spice Islands by sailing west, a feat never accomplished before. After a long, difficult winter at the southern tip of South America, he finally found what could be named the Strait of Magellan and became the first European to sail into the Pacific. This passage of Cape Horn had been so difficult that he perhaps got his expectations up too high. He thought he would make the Spice Islands in just a few days. Instead, he sailed for over three months without sighting any land. When he did, his provisions had grown so low and scurvy had hit his crew so hard that many of his crew had died, and those that remained were emaciated. They finally reached land and replenished their supplies, however, and Magellan's decimated crew regained their health. Magellan thanked God and felt that he had found favor with God, perhaps a bit too much. When he was befriended by a tribal leader in the Philippines, he told the chief that he would go to battle with his enemy and show him the awesome power of Spanish arms. His men-at-arms had enough of needless hardship, however, and the only volunteers he could muster were some cooks and a few men untrained in warfare. Magellan led these into battle, firm in his belief that God was on his side. Sadly for him, God had other ideas. Magellan's ragtag crew of would-be soldiers was overwhelmed by the natives, and Magellan was killed. Of his five ships and crew of 270, only one, with a remaining crew of about 17, captained by the Basque Juan Sebastian Elcano, returned to Spain on September 2, 1522. These were the first humans to circumnavigate the world. In 1519, the same year as Magellan set out, Hernan Cortes set out from Spain for the New World. Up to this point, no great wealth had been found in the New World. Yet there were stories of cities with great wealth that lay far in the interior of the new continent. With 11 ships and only 600 men, Cortes found and conquered the great city of Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztec Empire. He would return to Spain with untold riches. Ten years later, Francisco Pizarro would do Cortes one better. He would find and conquer the empire of the Incas with only 180 soldiers. Again, he returned in triumph to Spain with riches far beyond anyone's expectations. If, at this point, you're screaming into your speakers, wait a minute, you're not telling the real story, then I feel as though I've been doing my job. The story I've told up till now was largely the story I learned when I was younger. It was the story that I was always told. It's a story that starts with John Cabot exploring North America the establishment of Jamestown by the Virginia Company, goes on to the colonial period, the revolutionary period, with a deep dive into the fathers of our country, the birth of America, etc., etc. This is the stuff that I always grew up with, and even when I was studying this stuff all those years ago in college, it just felt normal. Now it seems so odd to look at this period from such a Eurocentric viewpoint. Let's start with European diseases. It seems that Europeans worked and lived in closer proximity with their animals than other people did. When it got cold in the winter, animals were sometimes brought indoors at night to prevent them from freezing. All of this meant that there were a lot of livestock diseases, such as cowpox, that jumped from livestock to European peasants. 
Over the millennia, Europeans built a certain immunity to these diseases. This meant that diseases like measles and smallpox were dreaded diseases in Europe, but were usually not deadly. The rest of the world didn't have this immunity, though. When Europeans made their way to Africa and to the New World, their diseases took off like wildfire. How to adequately convey an accurate portrait of how much suffering this caused. In many areas, European diseases killed 80% of the native population. These were not people who laid down and died peacefully in their sleep. They died miserable, painful deaths after agonizing illnesses. They were tended by terrified loved ones who were mortified to watch their husbands, wives, and children die so miserably, only to become ill and die miserable deaths themselves. Entire villages were sometimes wiped out. Multiply this by millions of times over to get the true scale of the devastation caused by European diseases. I don't think we can adequately conceive of suffering and death on that scale. It goes back to the old saying, The death of one person is a tragedy, the death of a million is a statistic. But these weren't statistics to the native populations who lived through these epidemics. It's not clear how much Europeans were aware of this kind of devastation when it was going on. Would they have cared if they had known? Perhaps it's an academic question as they weren't aware of much of this illness and death. But we're always tempted to refer to our opening excerpt from Bartolome de las Casas' description of the brutality of the Spanish conquistadors to answer this question. Okay, let's give the Europeans of the 16th century the benefit of the doubt, and for the sake of argument, say they didn't intend for their diseases to be so devastating to the native inhabitants of the lands they were exploring. When, then, did they begin causing horrors and devastations among the natives they encountered? The answer, sadly, is almost immediately. Prince Henry the Navigator wanted an income stream to offset the great expense of his navigation school and shipbuilding program. What was there in Africa that was of value to Europeans? They didn't have significant gold, spices, or manufactured goods. What did they have then? Slaves, of course. Prince Henry began the African slave trade almost as soon as the first ships of discovery made their way down the African coast. Beginning in 1441, one of Prince Henry the Navigator's expeditions to Africa captured several Africans and brought them back to Portugal. One of them was a chief who promised that if he was returned to Africa, he would supply Prince Henry with a large supply of indigenous Africans whom Prince Henry could enslave. This sounded like a great deal for Prince Henry, who didn't seem to have any qualms about the Slaves for Freedom scheme. The chief was good to his word, and Prince Henry had discovered an income stream from which he could fund his ongoing explorations. Slavery, then, was one of the very first results of what has become known as Europe's Age of Exploration. This trickle of African slaves that started under Prince Henry the Navigator would, of course, turn into a torrent in the coming centuries. The brutality with which the Spanish treated the native population of the Americas is almost impossible for us to conceive. The opening excerpt is from Bartolome de las Casas. He was a Spanish landowner who came to the New World and established a large farm known as an encomienda. Like other large estate owners, las Casas had Native American slaves who did the work on his encomienda. But unlike other estate owners, his compassion switch began to malfunction. Initially, 
Las Casas was able to own Native Americans and exploit and abuse them without feeling the compassion that we would feel for someone we care about who is being treated in the same manner. For Las Casas, Native Americans were an outgroup for which he felt no compassion, enabling him to treat them with high reactive aggression, owning them, exploiting them, probably whipping them, etc. This is what I've called the compassion switch. We as humans feel compassion for others who we see in pain or distress. But if the person in pain or distress is seen as an outgroup, we're able to turn our compassion switch off and watch their sufferings with no feelings of compassion. In fact, depending on our level of reactive aggression, we might even affirmatively enjoy watching their suffering, as Roman citizens enjoyed watching enemy captives killed in the Colosseum games. I suppose you might call this our bullying gene. Why do we enjoy watching the pain of others in our outgroups? And why do we affirmatively bully those in our outgroups who are weaker than us? Not all of us do this, of course, but it definitely happens. One study estimates that around 20% of high schoolers experience bullying. How much did slave owners actively enjoy the subjugation and abuse of their slaves? I don't know, but at any rate, something seems to have happened to Las Casas' compassion switch. It turned back on, and he was able to see the suffering he was causing his slaves. This finally bothered him so much, he got rid of his encomienda. This continued to eat at him, and he began to advocate that other encomienda owners do the same thing. He foreseeably didn't get very far with this, and ultimately began to advocate to King Ferdinand that the crown get involved in ameliorating the excesses against the Native American population. Bartolomé de las Casas was very much the exception, however. There is far too much wealth to be made in the New World, and Native Americans were not like Europeans. They weren't Christian, they spoke different languages, and they didn't even look like Europeans. As I've said, however, disease decimated the Native American population. The remainder were so severely abused by the Spanish that they died at alarming rates. Working as slaves seriously diminished the remaining population. The solution? Treat the population better? Oppress the slaves less? Of course not. Simply expand the African slave trade that Prince Henry had begun. There they found an almost unlimited number of slaves to labor in the hot sun every day on the encomiendas and mines. Okay, this is a strong indictment of the Spanish, but what about the English? They set up a colonial system in North America that had a largely non-slave economy, at least before cotton took over as the main cash crop in the southern colonies, didn't they? To answer this, keep track of everything you eat for a day and record how much sugar and sweeteners you consume on a daily basis. Unless you're diabetic, or you've consciously made a decision to take sugar out of your diet, you'd be surprised at how much sugar is in the average American diet. It's a lot. Now imagine a time before sugar, when any sweetener was extremely expensive. This was the average European diet before the 1500s. Then came the first sugarcane plantations in the West Indies, and the production of sugar on a mass scale for the first time. This was completely transformative to the European diet. Once affordable sugar became available, the English bought it in massive amounts. This, of course, led to massive sugarcane plantations, and the mass importation of slaves from Africa. Sugar plantation work was body-destroying work that had a very high mortality rate, and left slaves old far before their time. 
Slaves were divided into three gangs. The first gang of slaves did the hardest, most backbreaking work. After about ten years of this, their bodies were broken to a point where they were unable to do such difficult work anymore. They were then moved to the second gang, where they would still do very difficult work, but not the backbreaking work of the first gang of slaves. Finally, at about 40, their bodies were the bodies of old men and women. They were moved to such jobs as weeding and catching rats, jobs that the aged and children were forced into. They would remain in the third gang until their death. We talked about Jesus beginning a new paradigm in which the in-group, out-group paradigm would be shattered and we would learn compassion for those who were formerly in our out-groups. Now we've had 1,500 years for Christians to adopt this teaching and incorporate it into their lives and culture. How are they doing with that? Yeah, not so great. In-groups are still in-groups and it turns out that it's pretty easy to pick and choose which of Jesus' teachings to follow. This compassion for out-groups love your enemy and all that, it's pretty easy to ignore all that when everyone else is ignoring it as well. After all, Native Americans and Africans were so different from us. And weren't there slaves in the Old Testament? And blah, blah, blah. So, 1,500 years down the line, we still haven't made significant progress on that front. But we are beginning to look at what happens when a country still has a large amount of reactive aggression against outgroups. And there's a massive difference in the balance of power between conquering explorers and the conquered inhabitants of new and unknown lands. We haven't been seeing this kind of exploitation and abuse of people on this kind of scale in Europe, but it wasn't because people had been more humane before the 16th century. One reason is that Europeans of different nationalities were outgroups, but not that much. They spoke different languages, but their elite all spoke and communicated in the same language, Latin. They were all Christian, and even more, they were all part of the same church, the Roman Catholic Church, and all sought their spiritual guidance from the same man, the Pope. That is, until Martin Luther brought Protestantism to Europe, and Europeans began killing each other on a new and horrific scale in the Thirty Years' War and the other wars of religion. But Africans and Native Americans weren't Christians. There was no shared culture, they were at a very different stage of economic development, and they looked so different. So other European nations were outgroups, kind of. But Africans and Native Americans, they were really outgroups. Europe was filled with nations that were competitive and grew out of the Roman martial empire-building culture. Consequently, by the time they began to expand into areas with native inhabitants that had no effective defense against European cannons and aggression, the Europeans' only paradigm was that of conquering nations subjugating others. I don't know that what happened would have been any different if the Roman Empire, instead of being next to other Iron Age cultures with similar technologies, had been located next to native cultures with Stone Age technologies. But this is when Europeans came into contact with these other cultures. And the legacy they left is one of violence, subjugation, and brutality. I keep saying that the march of history is an unbelievably slow but inexorable march towards increasing humanity. I stand by that, and will continue to see this march. But the problem we see in this episode is, 
What happens when a culture that still has a large amount of reactive aggression against outgroups finds itself in a position to oppress other cultures on a massive scale? This week we've found the answer to that question, and it isn't pretty. We'll continue to see this side of Western culture get uglier before it gets better. This week's read is 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created, by Charles Mann. It covers the effect of the Columbian exchange from the perspective of Native Americans. It does a much better job of explaining the devastating effects of what happened when Native American culture came into contact with European culture than I could do in one episode. It's an eye-opener. For those who are drawn in by this book, you might enjoy 1491 even more. This is a man's book about the Americas before the Columbian Exchange. Enjoy. See you next week.